This is episode 22 of Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Richard Norton Smith. It starts after this. What do you think the impact of this whole... Actually, you can combine the two, a sexual harassment um, world going on in this country, women, men, and the sex scandals going on inside the church. What's yeah. the combined impact on, from a historical standpoint? Well, I mean, clearly, you know, we're at a crossroads. Um, there's no doubt that for millions of people, including nominal Catholics, the church has lost its claim to moral authority. And it's forfeited that claim, not only by the original sin of sexual abuse, but by the subsequent cover-up. Um, I mean... The old cliche in politics holds true in ecclesiastical politics. In some ways, bad as the crime is, and we're not minimizing the crime, but but even worse, in some ways, is the cover-up. Um, the fact of the matter is, if you just look at the numbers, statistically, the, the church in the United States has done an admirable job, beginning with reforms in the 2002 and thereabouts. They've certainly... Um, diminished the number of, of of incidents that are being reported, while at the same time they've, they've turned up the spotlight, if you will, um, and um, and and it's and you know and it's also it's really important that we not single out the church. I mean, the fact of the matter is, this is a cancer that exists in many institutions, certainly in many faiths. Um, in many cultures. The, the problem is, you know, a movie studio or a bank does not purport to issue moral commands. It, it does not claim any particular monopoly on, on moral wisdom. Um, and well, you know where it goes. I don't know. I mean, I think the the more immediate problem is, and it's inseparable from a looming schism within the Catholic Church between those who believe that this Pope is in some way abandoning traditional Catholic theology, and others who find him the ultimate breath of fresh air. Um, I mean, he's not... I mean, Paul VI, who I actually have a great admiration for, uh, he had an impossible act to follow, and he had an almost impossible assignment, which was to bring Vatican II to a successful completion and then implement the reforms. It's one thing to stand in a window looking... St. Peter's Square, and announce we're going to open the window to the world, and uh, and and in some ways bask in the praise of theoretical reformer. It's another to live with the consequences 
of a church that in many ways divided and and yet and yet you know to walk the tightrope between modernists and traditionalists and Paul the sixth plus he was Pope uh, let's face it during the time when authority all over the world was breaking down you know the late 60s early 70s um, so anyway but but I, so there there's been this thread through the tapestry of the faith um, for as long as I've been interested in the church between for lack of a better word modernists those who would take cognizance of and to some degree uh, adapt to the contemporary culture if only because you don't want to lose your influence and those who insist that there can be no compromise with evil and however they define it go back to your 19 years working for those six different institutions yeah. when you look back on the presidential libraries that you've worked for and also the Dole Center and the Lincoln uh, Library which which experience had you were the most difficult time and why well I guess you know uh, the obvious answer to that would be the last one um in Springfield um, and there are a number of reasons for that some of which by the way I readily own up to is my own shortcomings um, talking about the Lincoln the Lincoln yeah the Lincoln Library, Library Museum. Museum I was recruited um, gosh and, and uh, in 2001 and um, the, the the real people, the real visionaries, and they were visionaries. I mean, it's remarkable. You want evidence of what one person with an idea can do. I've said this before in Springfield. There's a woman named Julie Cellini who dreamed of... She'd been involved with the Illinois State Historic Library as a trustee of sorts on the State Historic Preservation Committee. But her dream was to create a world-class Lincoln Library slash Museum. And against all odds, she succeeded. Now, you know, <laughs> in retrospect, there might have been different ways to, to go about it, but that in no way diminishes from, you know, the extraordinary accomplishment. And she obviously she had a lot of help, and obviously a lot of people gave a lot of money, and the state gave a lot, and the federal government got involved. I mean, you know. But if Julie Sweeney had not stepped forward, there would not be a Lincoln Library Museum. All right. I'm speaking very frankly here. What I was naive about, when I, when I said, yes, I'll do this, I did not realize that I was stepping into kind of a hotbed. Springfield is a, all places are unique, I guess, in their own way. But Springfield is, and particularly then, was a place riven by different camps 
old enmities, um, individual feuds. Capital of Illinois. Capital of Illinois. Um, it's a very political town. And, um, for example, I did not know that I was inheriting along with what was seen as the Salini support. Um, you know, they had their critics. Um, there were folks at the University of Springfield, or University of Illinois at Springfield, who had their own view of what this project should be. Perfectly, you know, entitled to that. Um, and there had been some bad blood over the years. And I was naive enough to think that it wouldn't spill off on me or that, uh, you know, I could avoid the institutional and individual um, disagreements that had taken place over time. Anyway, um, I, I've said, you know, it's funny, I've said about every every job, of, you know, even difficult ones, they all, and they all presented challenges. I... I was seen as an agent of change, which means you know from day one that to some people you, you're perceived as a threat. You know without in any way intending to be such that you are cast as a polarizing figure. You know that um, there are people who want to impute bad motives, or just, quite frankly, the more successful you are, the more visible you become, um, <laughs> the oldest lesson in the world, the more likely there are people who resent you, either because your picture is in the paper and theirs isn't, or your vision of an institution, which is different from the status quo. That, that they're accustomed to. I mean, all of that. People, you know, people encounter this every day in their work, in their business, etc. And I, you know, over time became less naive. I don't think I ever became cynical uh, or expected it. But I was, I was prepared for it. But I, I was not fully prepared. <laughs> Springfield's not a big town, but it has big emotions and big resentments and big rivalries and um, at that stage in the West, you know I've said in other forums um, there's no job with less job security than to be the first director of a presidential library and there are exceptions to the rule but not many and you start thinking about it and then it's really not hard to figure out why because there are so many constituents, constituencies. Um, if you have a living president, family, they certainly, understandably, feel they have a claim on the institution uh, or the foundation that built it, paid for it. They certainly feel. But at the same time, you're working for the government. Uh, it has its own standards, its own expectations. You have um, the press, frankly, that wants instant access 
and, and researchers who would like. I mean, there, there, you know, there are a lot of people with perfectly understandable um, expectations, and they can't all be accommodated. And plus, you know, just the wear and tear. Woodrow Wilson famously said, if you want to make enemies, change something. Well, you know, I spent most of those 19 years changing things. I don't think I made enemies. Um, but I probably made fewer friends than I might have if I had uh, been in another line of work. You actually haven't said what went wrong, if anything went wrong, in Springfield. That's because I'm being discreet. <laughs> um, it was a combination of no one thing went wrong. Um, I think, um, and in fact, I don't mean to leave the impression. I don't look upon that as a failure, and I, I don't think people in Springfield look on it as a failure. Um, and I'm not, that sounds defensive. I don't look upon. I don't harbor, you know, regrets about that. I think I was probably, you know, what I I I wasn't conscious of it. I wasn't burned out, but you know, I'd done five institutions, and I just left a startup, the Dole Institute, in a in a in a difficult environment, a university. Um, full of political scientists who I think in some cases resented um, my vision of the Dole Institute. Um, I mean, there were a lot of sparks struck in Lawrence. Now, there are also wonderful friendships made. Every, I go back to Lawrence, you know, every year and speak at the Institute, and, and we have a full house, and, and you know, it's, it's a very happy experience. But, but again, you're swimming upstream you're, you're challenging the status quo. I've never found an institutional environment more resistant to change than than a university. And um, so I had all of that and the scars that went with it. And I don't think I was really, you know, what I should have done if I'd had the luxury was sort of take a year off, you know. But it's I plunged right into... The Lincoln, and I mean practically, this was a project behind schedule, over budget. The only thing most people knew was, you know, John Simon down in Carbondale, who was firing volleys of ridicule at rubber Lincolns, you know, and the media beating, you know, a path to his door. Um, you know, the place was being branded as a kind of Disney-esque treatment, uh, devoid of... And I, and I thought, you know, I was naive. I didn't think hard enough about... I was inheriting this. I was inheriting all of this. And, and quite frankly, and there are people there who have subsequently told me this, um, you know, I was more than willing to put whatever credibility I had, academic and otherwise, behind this project. And it wasn't just because I was drawing a paycheck. I believed in it. I mean, and I think, by the way, I, I think time has proven 
not me, but the people who really conceived of the place, I think it's proven um, that their vision prevailed. It, it's The example I've often used is the World War II Memorial out here in the mall. You know, as long as it was an abstraction, as long as it was something on a drawing board, it was a real target for criticism. And there are all sorts of reasons that you could find to criticize it. Once it was built, whatever made people may think of the architecture, I mean, it, it it's surprising how quickly it came to be accepted and indeed became, for many people, a, a place of pilgrimage. Well, it's interesting. The day we opened, and you were there, C-SPAN cameras were there for that very complicated logistical program that we did, um, once people... There was all... There was always a line between, frankly, John Y. Simon and, and, a, and a few people who thought like him and, and, frankly, some reporters who were looking for a story and the general public. And I knew that the first thing I did when I got to Springfield, this was a great, big, empty construction site, which no one should have been allowed in. And I decided, no, you know, we're, we're opening in whatever, eight months. I said, right now, this is just an abstraction. These people are paying for this. So we're going to take one day, and we're going to open it up, and everyone who wants to go through, I will give them a tour. And we had over 4,000 people show up. The first from Chicago was there like at 6 in the morning. And and we took them through, and people, actually, the, the locals... Uh, who I think, in retrospect, had some doubts about whether this was a good idea, uh, came to see the value of doing it. But 4,000 people went away that day as evangelists for the to-be-opened Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library. That was the best response to the Rebel Lincolns that I you know, could come up with. So there, there was... a. a I spent a lot of my time there trying to whittle away at this, I think, kind of cynical, kind of superficial, um, you know, uh, attempt to throw cold water on a pretty remarkable project. Um, But then once it opened, it was pretty clear to me I, I had decided a year before I left that I would that I, I had an obligation to get both the library and the museum built opened programmed staffed we hired over 100 people without politicians being involved um, and I had to say I said to Governor Bogoyevich I'll do this but on one condition that is you keep the politicians at bay, and whatever else you say about the governor, and there's a lot that can be said, uh, he kept his word. And uh, But it, it became clear to me, once the place opened, and once the politicians got their pictures taken, and got whatever they were going to get out of the creation establishment of this institution, that um, logic told me, since the state was broke, also, that the level of support 
would be very difficult to sustain. And that, and that proved to be the case. Richard Norton Smith is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.